Hi, and welcome to Om Philosophisk Liv och Tankar, a part where we discuss philosophy and philosophical development with current philosophers. I'm Fredrik Eriksson, liaison librarian in philosophy here at Lund University. And by my side, today we have... Jakob Stensöken, a PhD student in practical philosophy here in Lund. And also... Signe Savén, also a PhD student in practical philosophy here at the university. Nice to have you both here by my side. And today's special guest is Thomas Metzinger, Professor of Theoretical Philosophy at Johannes Gutenberg University in Mainz. Welcome. Hello, I look forward to this. Uh, so today we're going to try to, to uh, follow you and your philosophical development. And let's start from the very beginning and how you remember your first philosophical thoughts. Well, it's all, of course, difficult, but I do remember that at the age of 12, I became interested in books. And the first two books I ever had and read were two terrible parapsychology books. The first one was called Radar of the Psyche, and it was all about telepathy, and I actually read that. And then there was another one, Sea Behind the Iron Curtain by Ostrander and Schroeder, which described how the Russian Secret Service trains media with psychokinesis and telepathy. And I decided that there was really an absolute urgent gap of serious research. So I actually, when other people wanted to be locomotive drivers or pilots, I decided at 12 that I wanted to be a professor of parapsychology. And uh, a little later, I found out also um, that there was only one chair for parapsychology in Germany and that the guy was boring. <laughs> and uh, so I thought this was there was such a scandalous lack of knowledge there uh, that somebody had to go about this systematically. That was the first a little scholar awakened in me at, at, at 12. And uh, you can see some of this influence still, for instance, today in um, the papers I've written on out-of-body experiences and the attempts to recreate uh, out-of-body experiences in the lab. Um, but then I soon forgot all about this. Uh, at that time, still my main re religion was fishing. And my father did one very good thing after I got beaten up in high school. He put me in a judo club. Pretty soon afterwards, I had a small motorbike, which I always had to make faster. And other things became much more important. And if I try to reconstruct it, the second step was when I was 16 that there was really one turning point. Um, <clears throat> I was sick for two or three weeks. I had to stay home and lie in bed and I was terribly bored. So I started to sneak around because I had nothing to read and I found a strange book on my father's uh, um, bedside table by Georg Grimm, Die Lehre des Buddha, The Teachings of the Buddha. So I looked into this and I couldn't understand most of it. It was just too difficult for me. But then I turned the pages and there were these four noble truths. And I read the sentence, all life is suffering when I was 16. And this was like something went bong and rang a bell because this was to this time inconceivable to me. This was a, I, I was a thought that I thought nobody could have, mm. that all life might actually have a quality of negativity or suffering. Uh, but the problem was I didn't understand all of this. This was complicated about Schopenhauer and old-fashioned. I just couldn't read this book at 16, but 
I did remember they were talking about dhyana and meditation a lot, and that was important. So I made a little note in my head, when I'm grown up, I want to try meditation one time. And that I actually did uh, when I was 18, only two years later. And that, I mean, that's a thing that doesn't have much to do with my intellectual development as a philosopher, uh, at least not overtly, but that was like another turning point. Mm -hmm. And on the 11th of September of 1976, I started uh, practicing meditation regularly, and it came out of this. You know the date very clearly, so I guess it has a real important impact on you and your... Well, it's uh, it's like a second birthday. Yeah, uh, I sometimes celebrate it by myself, uh, withdraw for a day. Uh, I did this this year when it was 45 years, you know, spend a Saturday by myself. Mm -hmm. Nothing dramatic, uh, nothing religious, but it had some effects. But then, so um, I was part in our high school, we were... Do you just want to say gymnasiasts in English in a gymnasium? Mm, yeah, we were very radical leftist young people at sixteen, and we were agitated by the first. I was ten years old in nineteen sixty-eight, and many of the nineteen sixty-eight uh, people thought it's important to go into the schools. So we had the first teachers that really agitated us in a political way. So I also, for instance, went to my first demonstration uh, when I was 12 and everybody was shouting and I was shouting, Franco ist ein Mörder und Faschist. So we were demonstrating against Franco. I didn't know what a fascist was. I didn't know what Franco was, who Franco was, yeah. but I just knew I wanted to be like the, the big people who were already 16, 17, 18. So one influence was we were really were drawing into the ongoing house squatting demonstrations, tear gas, police, very early. And, uh, and we were very political and we had night-long discussions. This was not philosophy, but I think at 16 I was also a Trotskyist. I mean, we went through different stages. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, I also had a Mao Bible. I don't know what that, you know, what that yeah, is. A little, little red book. book. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And <clears throat> I still remember we all wore these palace PLO yeah. sc scarves for demonstrations, also against the, the tear gas. And uh, one day my mother came to me and said, could she have one of those too? She thought that would be really nice over the table as a tablecloth. <laughs> and I said, Mama, do you know what the PLO is? And uh, so as already in high school, we were very radical and we discussed a lot of stuff, Marx, and we were supported by certain teachers. Only later we learned, we thought, who were very cool. We had teachers who let us come to their home. Um, there was a scandal because two people didn't know why they could have sex and the teacher said, you can come to my apartment, <laughs> you know, and it dawned on me, we, um, when one of my friends, when we were 18, said to one of our leftist teachers that agitated us, well, very cool for an 18-year-old, isn't he? But for a grown-up. And then I realized there was also a hidden agenda behind it. Mm -hmm. So we had hot intellectual discussions. And also at 16, I knew 
in the German course, for instance, we made fun of the teacher. We wanted the best mark and we knew how to do it. You know, the kind of gossip they like, intellectual gossip, easy to play. Uh, and so um, I grew up in this radical political environment, but also with uh, a rising movement where people say it's not enough. We have to change our own minds. This is all completely superficial, this political surface activity in which we're engaged. And um, then I did a big, big trip. I hitchhiked all over Canada and down to California after high school, had many adventures, wanted to build a log cabin and burn my passport, and uh, then chickened out and made maybe one of the biggest mistakes in my life, <laughs> actually returned. Um, Where do you want to live then? In the, in the north of Canada? In a... Well, the, the, the thing is, we went there when we were 18 and we met a lot of older hippies who had escaped from the Vietnam War into Canada. And in Canada, you can buy land for 99 years. And after that, everything belongs to the state. But you can have land for free. Mm. It's called crown lease, I think. And that was the idea. Yeah. So we joined these older hippies and learned how they were building log cabins. And it was amazing because we were like 18, 19 and playing in the school volleyball team. And we thought we were so cool, you know, and we were eating fried eggs and bacon in the morning. And these older 35 year old hippies said, no, we don't eat shit like this. Uh, uh, showed us something they picked from the ground. We're all vegetarian. And then we suddenly realized they're in much better shape than we are. When it comes down to cutting trees or things, we thought we were in full power. But these vegetarian guys, we thought we are, you know, we're the volleyball gods and we're in any shape and everything. And that made us think about not eating meat, maybe. That was mm. that service. And then I started to study philosophy in the Frankfurt department. Home. How did that happen? How did you end up there? And was philosophy your first choice? Uh, I didn't know philosophy or psychology, but I, I decided for philosophy. And I still know I caused a little scandal on the first lecture I ever heard in my life. So at that time, I was also a great yogi. So I did yoga and breathing exercises and meditation, a 90-minute program two times a day, morning and evening. So I did my morning program, meditated, got on my blue bike, wrote to my first lecture and there was a philosopher who was called Rudiger Bubner and he was speaking about intentionality and the first sentence I ever heard with more than 100 students was all consciousness is consciousness of something. The rest of the 90 minutes I didn't understand what he was saying but I knew that was wrong <laughs> and I also didn't know that you don't ask questions after lectures <laughs> so I just asked him a question and said uh, this was so utterly wrong because everybody can have an experience of consciousness without content. How could somebody say something like that? Uh, it was a simple and natural thing to experience consciousness itself. And I remember he discussed with me a little bit and then he took all his papers and he said, I cannot understand you and I do not want to understand you. And he walked off and that was my first philosophical encounter. And it didn't scare you. You, you stayed at the philosophy department. Well, in the, about the fifth semester, I wanted to stop. 
And then I had another, so we're going by turning points. Uh, and I had another turning point. Um, so I thought I didn't see the point of it all. And I also sensed something we didn't study properly. You probably study better. You know, you, you couldn't. You couldn't ring anybody on the telephone before 11, for instance, when I was a student. And if there were seminars from 9 to 11, it was a no-go in the middle of the night. You, you know, you just don't go into university then. And by my standards today, I didn't get a good education at all because they had this attitude, we want maximum freedom for you. You should be able to, just these two courses in logic and everything else, you decide for yourself. That was the ideology of the philosophy professors. And I now understand it was only because I want, they didn't, were lazy and didn't want the extra work, was really taking care of us. So we kind of meandered through everything that was offered without any structure and got lost and, and, and also felt stupid, of course, because we didn't understand things. It was very demoralizing. And um, then one, Turning point, another thing I sensed, even if I don't, didn't understand what these people are uh, talking about often, I found they were not genuine. So I was disappointed. I thought chemists or physicists can be normal people and they can be neurotic. But of a philosopher, you expect something else, you know, a, a certain, I don't know, not wisdom, but a presence. Uh, of having lived a life, of living an examined life, and I just didn't see this. I saw a lot of vanity and a lot of rhetoric, and um, I think the English words are also pompousness and preposterousness and strategic obscuritism, so a lot of rhetoric and deliberate cloudiness. And I somehow I had the feeling when you're young, you don't understand it intellectually, but this isn't right because most of the people that do this aren't right in a certain way. They are very vain and compete. And then there was somebody completely unknown and I did a seminar that changed my life on um, the treatise of man by Descartes and the passions of the soul. And we looked at Descartes' own solution for the mind-body problem where the spirit push the soul in the pineal gland, the mind-body interaction. And this philosopher made me see something I hadn't understood before. That is, if we follow Descartes and consciousness has no spatial properties, it's not in space, it's not a less extensor, then there can be no locus of interaction in the physical world. There can be no place where the mind causally interacts with it. There could it be, it cannot be the neurocorrelate of consciousness of today. It cannot be Popper and Eccles' liaison brain in this three world theory of Popper and Eccles and the self and the brain. And um, it cannot be Descartes' solution, this paramechanical solution in the pineal gland. Although it was ingenious in a way because he thought consciousness is unified and there's one part in the brain that is neither right nor left. So it was a good idea. And that got me hooked. How can something that's non-spatial interact with something that's in physical space? So I got interested in the mind-body problem and decided to just finish my MIA as fast as possible, stupid as this was. But my attitude at the time was still, you know, we were very underground, um, very um, like um, 
working politically and on our own minds. So yoga and violent demonstrations, for instance, about the expansion of the airport in, in Frankfurt, Stadtbahn West. And in Germany, all this was different also than for you. We had to understand what in our tr intellectual tradition made the Holocaust possible. We were still, you know, other people were already liberated after World War II, but we had to understand this. Where did this come from? Mm -hmm. And because our parents and grandparents didn't talk about this, there was this wall of silence. Um, the whole student movement had a different character in Germany. It was also about understanding the roots of fascism and so forth. And the historical responsibility that something like that never happens again mm -hmm. uh, in this country. Where in time are we? Are we in the 70s? Or? We are now in 1980. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but we were the generation that came after the 1968 movement. And then in 1982, there was a right-wing rollback. So we had Helmut Kohl and then 16 years of um, Christian Democratic Party. So. This is when the people got sick with the 70s alternative movement and we were the generation that ran into the backlash, so to speak. That happened around 1980. That suddenly there was punk, not hippies anymore. Punk came, you know, mm -hmm. and suddenly everything was different. Neoliberalism and all of this. So I, my attitude at the time, just to give you a feeling, was still that Writing a PhD thesis was a bourgeois ritual. That is not something I would have initiated by myself. Um, so they brought a PhD grant to me and said, actually, we can organize this for you. You know, why don't you want to write a PhD thesis? And my attitude, as that is what my complacent memory has at the time, was okay, if the system is so stupid that I can live underground for another three years and have the money, then I'll write a thesis. And then I did a big experiment. Um, I wanted to test solitude. I wanted to know how it is to be really alone. And I moved into a 350-year-old mill south of Limburg, where there were 19 fish ponds and there were sheep. And uh, my job was I could live very cheaply if I had to look after the sheep because you couldn't mow the grass around the fish ponds. So the, the sheep had to eat it all. But then you had to take care of the sheep and there was a dog and everything. So I moved there and I uh, wrote my thesis there. And that was a very formative experience for me. Um, but we're just talking about the philosophical part and the philosophical part was that only in the course of writing my thesis did I discover analytical philosophy. Um, uh, that was new. There was a reader that was called Analytical Philosophy of Mind, 1981, edited by a Swiss philosopher, Peter Biri, and this just blew my mind away. I didn't know all this existed. You know, the best thing in Germany was Popper and Eccles, the self and its brain. Mm. And people would think that Galen, Plessner, Scheler, and Heidegger were the last hot stuff in philosophy. And then I was allowed as a PhD student to take place at a Center for Interdisciplinary Research in Bielefeld to take part in a research group and to sit there in a corner and listen. And there were these people, there was a guy called Daniel Dennett, 
whom, whom, whom I met in the swimming pool and talked to for the first time, you know. And there was another guy who was absolutely brilliant, Jack Wan Kim. And there were these other philosophers, Robert van Gulik, Ernie Lee Poor. And I was completely shocked how they would give talks in short pants and with a t-shirt. And they would have, A, they would be crystal clear. And uh, B, I saw there was real philosophical substance there. And then I realized something I, I wasn't fully aware of, is that in Germany, we are still super busy with understanding how could this happen? Mm. You know, also everything bombed, all the universities destroyed, reconstructing it, uh, having no intellectual culture anymore, trying to build, rebuild an intellectual culture, an academic culture, because, you know, in philosophy, all the Jewish intelligentsia had either been murdered or driven abroad. All the teacher-disciple connections had been cut off. There was just nothing. It was like an intellectual desert. So we had these um, discussions, and then I realized in the rest of the world, philosophy had been going on. Mm. I became aware, you know, I read uh, identity theory, um, smart Australian philosophers. I, I suddenly saw the screen, Jack Wan Kim, and I realized the rest of the world is really making progress and has a very systematic way of doing philosophy. And, uh, but it's clear uh, and have real problems. And that's what I got uh, drawn into analytical philosophy of mind. But, but what was your PhD about? What was the topic of your PhD? And did that change during that time when you discovered? No, it's, it's, it was called Recent Contributions to the Philosophical Debate of the Mind-Body Problem. And it's basically, it's history of ideas and evaluation at the same time. Of course, today, totally embarrassing. You know, totally embarrassing. <laughs> but it's like, um, it just starts uh, uh, after um, Ryle, the concept of mind, starts with UT Place, identity theory, and ends with supervenience, Jake Wan Kim. And I looked at the about nine different attempts after World War II to solve the mind-body problem, each in a row, functionalism, identity theory, neutral monism, all these things, and came to the conclusion None of this works, but great progress has been made. <laughs> A final chapter where I evaluated the, um, how do you say, the advantages and disadvantages of each approach to solve the mind-body problem. But what, what happens then? You're done with your PhD, you discovered this new field in philosophy, this international impressions. Uh, so what, what's the next step then? I guess you move away from you. Well, topic. it wasn't, again, it was never clear to me. I never had the idea I want to be a professor. And now I have trained a lot of young people and I constantly talk to young people who want to make an academic career. And I'm still to this very day, it's really strange if I have an excellent 26, 28-year-old person and uh, ask them, so, so you want to be a professor? And they say yes. At that age, I still think it's kind of weird. Uh, um, but there are these people, you know, who are very oriented from the beginning. I wasn't. I went to India uh, uh, multiple times, uh, did other things. Um, so 
the next maybe interesting turning point is it was very difficult to teach as a PhD student. It was not like today where they want to reduce the teaching load by forcing people even to teach. Um, you had to apply and all of the professors had to decide and in 1987 I taught my first seminar ever. That was another turning point. And you guess what the topic was. The topic was artificial intelligence and philosophy. And unheard of, you know, nobody had any idea what that was. And I had this stuff, Aaron Sloman, The Space of Possible Minds, these early papers, um, um, Chinese room argument, all these uh, things, functionalism. And I remember how with a beating heart, I arrived at room number 104, which holds more than 100 people. and couldn't go in because the room was black with people. And there was like, a, I don't know how you say it, there was a crowd before the door. Mm. And I had to get into the front of the room. And everybody thought, why does this guy with his sneakers need to go to the front? You know, this room is full. We're waiting for the professor. So first I had to fight my way there. And then very soon, I realized in a large part of the students, the attitude is there's something that must be prevented, artificial intelligence. So as I just told you over lunch, an important word at the time for us was proto-fascist. We were labeling things as proto-fascist. So if anybody, for instance, at the time when I studied philosophy would say that biology or the brain could have anything to do with the mind, professors would say, somebody would say something like this, had not understood what philosophy was, because it was transcendental from the beginning, and empirical facts played no role. So now somebody comes with artificial intelligence. And the basic sentiment was, we have to go there. This has to be stopped. What is this? Thinking machines. Nobody has ever heard of this. So um, it, was, it took quite some time to get respect and make people read this and discuss this and make them see that there was a serious discussion. Um, so this was an interesting experience. And you can see this today, like, I have not do, been doing very much in philosophy of artificial intelligence at all, but for instance, from 2018 to 20, I was in this European Commission's high-level expert group for AI, and somehow this keeps coming back to me as a topic, although I'm not so terribly interested because I know to understand things on a technical level. It's just possible. All right. We can now jump to the next turning point if you want. Yeah, let's. let's. <laughs> so I was sharing a house. I have to leave off, uh, for obvious reason, a lot of private stuff that you would find amusing and interesting. I was sharing a house with four other people and I come back from India with my girlfriend. And I say, um, your former boss has called something about your future. <laughs> and I, I never had, I was absolutely clueless what do I want to do now? The main project had just failed. I had started to keep bees while I was living in this thing because I had the idea you need a healthy, ethically sound way to live, make a living, live at the margins of this absolutely insane and unethical society. So for a certain time I thought keeping bees, you know, 
the product honey is a perfect product you can work from april to september in nature by yourself and then you go to india over the winter that was the vision at the time um, i slowly realized that it's not so easy that you need to have at least 200 how do you say hives or yeah, uh, at least 200 because you have bad years too and prices vary and you have to stock and it's not that easy also because there were new parasites for bees and you needed medication so that had just evaporated becoming a philosophical beekeeper and i came back listening um, to the talks of Jiddu krishnamurti in, in india i'd attended his talks in switzerland a lot um, met some famous people there didn't know what to do um, my former boss had nobody who liked him but got a new position uh, uh, in at the university of gießen and urgently needed a research assistant so guess what i said uh, i said well if the system is so stupid to give me <laughs> five years of money to write a habilitation thesis then i will go and write a habilitation thesis and that's where trouble started in my life. That's where I descended into an academic career. And now I'm just about to get out of it again, probably 1st of April, the next year. Then all the trouble uh, started. Also many very sobering and hurting experiences, but also a lot. And I don't know um, what you could be interested in after that. So I wrote the second German monograph I uh, wrote was called Subjekt und Selbstmodell, Subject and Self-Model. And it had a very long subtitle. So I was thinking about consciousness, and I thought that the first-person perspective is the core of the problem. So the subtitle was The Perspectivalness of Phenomenal States from the Perspective of a Naturalist Theory of Mental Representation. So the idea was, could you describe the first-person perspective uh, in an empirically informed way um, as a representational phenomenon? I did that. Um, then I got kicked out of the university. I don't know, for reasons you may not want to know. So in, um, in the second German book, Subjekt und Selbstmodell, I developed the self-model theory of subjectivity. It's basically the idea that we do not have selves, but we have self-models in our brains which are transparent. And because they are transparent, we cannot experience them as representations, and we have a phenomenology of identification. So we are beings that have, for evolutionary and social cultural reasons, we have a complex self-model in our brain, and we are kind of glued to it. We are naive realists about mm. this, just like we are naive realists about the colored objects. I guess everybody of your listeners know that there are no colors in the real world, right? Only mental models of the world have something like colors in front of your eyes. There are only wavelength mixtures. And of course, all of your listeners also know that there are no things in this world or objects. The physicists have long explained uh, this to us. Only the brain's model of reality contains objects or even colored objects. So that is all the virtual reality in your head. And my point was the same is true, A, for the self, 
it's also a model that you don't recognize as a model. And second, for the intentionality relationship, for the meaning relationship, like I know this, I refer to you with this word or something like this. So that meaning, the meaning relationship is itself something that's assimilated in the brain. And um, I try to develop this with case studies. So I looked a lot into, for instance, psych psychiatric disturbances or brain injuries where people lose the sense of ownership for their limb or people think they are dead or uh, in lucid dreams, how the body is represented in the dream state. So I took a lot of empirical case studies to show that what we experience as ourselves is actually a model that can be changed in many different ways. And out of that book, so I must say, uh, you may think I've had an interesting life, but to me, it looks that I only had two good years in my academic career and else I've been at pretty third-class places, at best second-class places. So I'm someone who has never had an environment where he really felt good. And the first time I was really flourishing was when Pat and Paul Churchland invited me to come to UC San Diego uh, for a year, 1999-2000. And that's where I wrote an English version of that book. And that's that book called Being No One. And you see, at that time already, I thought Americans need something else. You know, you can't say something like, perspectivalness and naturalist mental representations, you have to go be no one right away, yeah. which maybe was a mistake. Uh, so I sat there and had a wonderful, very inspiring year at this excellent university with, with fantastic talks coming through. I still remember arriving in San Diego and the most, go their library, Geisel Library, the most rare German phenomenological literature. At the time I was looking for the original of um, Christian Wolf, uh, 1719, where the concept of Bewusstsein, consciousness, comes into the German language. I had six weeks. It was difficult with inter-university loan to get it uh, uh, in Germany, this German book. In California, it's in the shelf, you know. Uh, every very arcane German journal is there, sorted in with the lightest issue. There was a woman coming, putting me, putting a cable in my, to my computer in San Diego, where opening the web page of Spiegel Online in Germany was faster than opening a file on my hard disk suddenly. For the first time, I saw what it means to have access to journals electronically. Yeah. Uh, so it was a fantastic working uh, environment. I went to lunch with... Uh, the Nobel laureate Francis Crick. There were so many famous people coming through giving talks that you were under stress all the time because you wanted to meet, but there were famous people giving talks all the time. And like a feeling of missing out. So this was great. And I wrote this uh, strange book there in 1998. And then I got a full professorship at the University of Osnabrück for the first time. But this would have also been a much better place for me to be because I had helped construct the cognitive science uh, curriculum there. Um, it would have been a better environment for me than in Mainz. But only half a year later, I got um, 
uh, a job at the University of Mainz, which for certain reasons I just had to take because I, I would have never gotten into the salary class again if I hadn't done this. So um, since then, for the last 20 years, since 2000, I've been a professor in Mainz and had certain difficulties, but also interesting experiences there. And just to finish this off, the second really beautiful year in my life um, was uh, at the Wissenschaftskolleg in Berlin in a research group. That was a fantastic environment with super conditions, beautiful people where you could really do research. That's also where I met Peter Gardenfoss, for instance. Yeah. So, so you, the thing about the self, I know you have some experiments you've been talking about that explains the the illusion of self with the rubber hand and stuff like that. Could you mention something about those experiments? And yeah. How that... So, um, I don't think we have uh, um, a theory of self consciousness, but the human self model has many different layers. Um, there's the cognitive layer, the thinking self where you have the f sometimes you have the feeling that you are actively thinking. Most of the time, if you really look at it, it's something that happens to you. You mind wander, you lose control. Um, recently, I've written four papers from a philosophical perspective on new empirical data on mind wandering, which shows that the, we have a myth of cognitive agency. Most philosophers think we are cog cognitive agents most of the time, but if you look at this empirically, you show that you have no control over your thought processes for about two-thirds um, of your waking life. Uh, it just, just things happen, daydreams, little associations. It's very different from the classical philosophy, philosophical picture, but then embodiment became very important because many people said cognition is an embodied process, also in robotics. And um, the interesting thing many people talked about, we all looked into, is, is the contribution motor control uh, makes, for instance, to language acquisition, to understanding the meaning of words and so on. And in this context, the rubber hand illusion emerged, uh, which I guess many of you know from, I guess, a 1998 paper by Bot Winnick and Cohen. And I asked, some friends in neurosciences, I said, for philosophical reasons, I want a whole body version of the rubber hand illusion. Can you identify with an avatar? And that is what we did in 2007. And here in Sweden, you have a fantastic group, Henrik Ersson at Karolinska Neuroscience, who's also been developing this for more than 20 years. Uh, he also created these illusions. Uh, we call them full body illusions where you are stroked on the back and you see how somebody strokes yourself at the back in virtual reality and you feel drawn towards the avatar. And in the last 20 years, many people have tried to empirically research body awareness, the sense of ownership. What is the difference between the sense of ownership for a hand and the sense of ownership for the body as a whole? Can you manipulate it? So this exploded and created a whole new research tradition and I of course liked it because it demonstrates that the self is really a model and you can change this model in many different ways non-invasively without hurting the brain you create a certain context and self-experience changes. 
what does that mean to be to be someone if, if if we don't have a self what does it mean to be be someone that's a good question so um i've given an answer to this question in 2009 where we asked i talked about this in the first lecture also uh, which will be in the internet i understand yes. uh, um, so we asked the question what is the most simple form of selfhood if you leave away the thinking self, if you leave away the emotional self, if you leave away social and cultural relationships, where does selfhood start, the embodied sense of self? Because we had the feeling in this virtual reality experiments, that's what we're moving, the low-level embodiment, a bodily sense of self into the avatar. But what is that? And we thought it appears if you have orientation in space, if you have a sense of here, orientation in time, you have a sense of this is happening now, um, that you have a geometrical perspective, that you have a model of reality, you see the room around you, and you have this feeling of looking out of uh, your eyes, and you have a body image, a model of your own body that is transparent. So that's most important. If you have a conscious model of your body, like all of your listeners, everybody has right now, but you just cannot experience it as a model. Then you get this feeling of, I am this, and I am one unified thing here and now. Right? I'm a, consciousness has a center, and I am that center here and now. And it's somehow, it's in the torso, somehow the center. You can measure this, their experiment. Somehow it's in the middle of my body. But then there's also this little man behind the eyes who looks out through them, which is, of course, also a model. And um, so an important step was to ask, so what's the simplest kind of self-model a human being can have? And in these two lectures, uh, yesterday and the day before yesterday, I've asked the question, is there a simplest form of consciousness without self? Can human beings have consciousness without a self? And of course the answer is yes. We've known this from humankind's spiritual traditions, from meditation practice, but we also know it from psychoactive substances. We know that people have a complete dissolution of their ego, for instance, under LSD or psilocybin. And we also know that there are some serious psychiatric conditions where the sense of self may be completely lost. It's, it can happen if you get very sick. There are other things, for instance, like depersonalization syndrome, where you have the feeling you are not real anymore. You even, not only do you perceive the world like through a milk glass pane, it's all not real, but you are not in touch with anything. So we know many examples of conscious experience without self. That's one of the things I found interesting. So you told us that you've been meditating for 45 years. Yeah. Has that affected you? Would you say that that has affected you as a philosopher? And if so, in what way? Uh, well, the philosophical answer is always yes and no. So uh, I must say very clearly that I've always kept this private until about like two or three years ago. This was part of my private life. At the very beginning, I thought when I was 18, it would be a very cool way uh, 
to plan your life on two tracks, like do consciousness research through meditation and certain other things, perhaps, and in the academic uh, realm, you know, uh, with neuro really good analytical philosophy, with empirical data, cognitive science, neuroscientists, and do both things at the same time, third-person research and first-person research, and combine them. That was the idea. I'm not sure if that was a good idea, because it has been a strenuous life, and uh, I never know what would have happened if I said, had said, I don't want this intellectual nonsense, I'll only meditate, you know, only do first-person stuff. Maybe my life would have been much better, and maybe I would be a much happier person right now, one doesn't know. Um, I think many people do meditation for relaxation, for neoliberal self-pacification, uh, because they think it's good for their career, because they've heard something from America, or uh, because for therapeutic purposes, because they want to heal themselves. That's all fine. But I think an important thing to understand that meditation is an epistemic practice, at least for philosophers, as a philosophical way of practicing this, um, where it's really about knowledge and expanding about knowledge. So doing science is one epistemic practice. Doing philosophy is another epistemic practice. But meditating regularly, and that is something I've always been interested in, testing out altered states of consciousness but not just like that, but for their epistemological potential. Because you see all these people who meditate and um, or, uh, take certain psychoactive compounds or so, they all claim deep insights and knowledge and experiences. And the question is, is there really, uh, if you're critical and rational, is there really a potential for expanded knowledge there? Is there really something there that science and philosophy cannot offer. And I thought it would be good, and I've only recently learned there's an English word I didn't know before. Uh, in, for instance, in Buddhism, in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, there's the idea of a scholar practitioner. That is somebody who very intensely meditates, often monks, but also does Buddhist philosophy or something like this. And if you think about it, we've had this in our own tradition too. You know, we have had many monks and theologians who were, who were also very good philosophers in the Middle Ages. So there was a tradition of, you know, also working on it with other means and cultivating an intellectual approach. I thought this would be good, um, but I'm not sure. I think it would be really good if we had something like this because we lack it in the West. For instance, in certain areas like cognitive science or philosophy of mind, if we had researchers who were well-traveled in phenomenal state space, uh, I think it's always shocking to see if you see these brilliant analytical philosophers where the only thing they know is they can do together is to get drunk and then be friends the next morning. That is a very raw and uncultivated relationship to their own minds. And for instance, things I have done with my PhD students, we have also um, done short silent meditation retreats in meditation centers and then do 
a scientific conference afterwards. So three days of silence and then three days of trying to give talks to each other, our first test talks. And I've tried to do this. I can only report the results to you. All of them said this was a very interesting experience and they feel felt they could listen to each other, to each other's talks after that three days of meditating in a much better way. And the whole group dynamics was so much more better and productive. But also nobody else started meditating of them. They tested this out, but nobody took up and practiced themselves. Why is that? I don't know. You have to ask them. Uh, they're not interested. So and I'll tell you an interesting experience I've had. I got a lot of money from private sponsors and I had my own money because I got a five-year fellowship which included a little more than one million euros. And I wanted to do something um, really innovative. So I designed the Mental Autonomy Project and the idea was have 10 selected PhD students who get two degrees. That is, they have to study philosophy, cognitive science really well and write a PhD thesis. At the same time, for three years, they only get the money if they do that. They have to meditate um, uh, two times a day and they have to do a three-day retreat and a five-day retreat and a nine-day silent retreat in the end. And they have to write a little report how this influenced their thesis writing. But then the idea was also to design a new academic degree, the secular meditation teacher. Because the secular MBSR teachers you have now, they are only for therapeutic cases. They work in hospitals. But we ha don't have secular meditation practice in Australia. It's just starting very strongly for students. So we need to create our own tradition. Um, so I had offered these 10 luxurious PhD grants where at the end you would have a PhD in philosophy and have a degree as a meditation teacher and three years of practice. Then I put this out on the internet. Then I got a first wave from all over the world. Fantastic! Finally somebody do, does that. This is so cool. I want to come. Then I got a second wave and says, um, you want us to be finished by 28, 30s at the latest. I've been hanging around in India all my youth and not studied properly. I'm already 34. Can I do this too? Um, um, I'm already too old, but I, I have meditated on an Olympic level. I have been in Tibet in a monastery for six months, but I didn't study properly. Uh, can, can you make an exception? Uh, and that was already sobering. And then in the end, I had about 38 serious candidates. And I decided, I've never done this really in my whole life, to cancel the whole project and to give all the money back and not do it. And the reason was, you know, I've had PhD students and tried to help them for a long time. The people that came were just not academically good enough, their academic credentials. So if I took the 10 best people out of these 38, it was very clear that they were fantastic, serious young people. There was one person who was already a monk at 22, and they were very serious about this. 
but the academic training uh, wasn't so good. The BAs and the MAs they had, and I could see the first 10, everybody would look at them very critically. They would have be absolutely perfect on an academic level. And I didn't see they would become perfect. And that was an interesting lesson I learned. It's still an answer to your question, right? Um, it is possible that those people that are high achievers in analytical philosophy academically are extremely self-centered and focused people. And they are not interested in this opening up wide and doing anything where they don't know is this good for my CV or not. You know, why should I do something like this? Then I have to meditate two times a day to get this grant. Uh, and in the end, will this be good for my academic career? But those people who are very open to these first-person methods are not very focused and have not have done a million things in their 20s, but they haven't studied very well. So maybe it should be tried again, but that was an example of a failed project to bring spiritual practice and philosophy together. And maybe it's not possible. Yeah, so <clears throat> I want to re rewind back to... Yeah. So you said that you read Life is Suffering. You yes. said that you could relate to it instantly. And then maybe this paved the way for your meditation and also maybe your curiosity about consciousness. But do you think that... Did you, uh, can you sort of elaborate on that? What, what is suffering? Well, we do Why not, as I said yesterday, I'm going to say a little bit about this in the talk uh, today. We do not have a theory of suffering. And it would be so important we have theories of color vision, of emotions, but nobody goes there. And of course, the reason is obvious. You ruin your career. Nobody wants to hear anything about horrible suffering and pain and how it is really. And nobody wants to spend their work life looking into this. So we lack this. But for me, I wouldn't even bring evidence. Uh, it's completely obvious that in a human life, if you look at it carefully, there is more suffering than there is joy. It's super obvious. We are anti-entropic embodied system. We fight an uphill battle in a physical sense to stay alive for some 70 years and then we disappear and we have to engage in mortality denial we have to repress that fact. So our position in this world is a very difficult position. It's not easy to be a human being. I think it's, I don't want to use the word tragic, but to be an embodied human being, a mortal entity that came out of an evolutionary process that had no goal and no direction, and then know that you will die, it's not an easy situation to, to be in, you know, let alone diseases, old age, and dying. So for me, it has always been very obvious that this is... David Benatar has this one book, The Human Predicament. It, it's a, an ugly situation because we have this inbuilt existence bias that for most of us also, suicide is no option, you know. Um, so people start to do philosophy. <laughs> uh, who was it who said was it Camus who said it, or was it Nietzsche who said it, that um, the actual core question uh, in, in philosophy is the question of reasons not to commit suicide. 
And if you have, that is one of the interesting things I learned when I became a philosophy professor at office hours. There is a subset of students who begin to study philosophy because they look for a reason not to commit suicide. You see this as a professor. I don't know if you know any of those. Uh, so I think this is a serious thing and we should work on a theory of consciousness and it's really also an important question if there can be conscious intelligence without suffering. Is it possible? Uh, and what do we do if it's impossible? So uh, suffering is at the root of your what you think of ethics as well? Yes, and of course I only have done a little bit of applied ethics uh, as a side subject. I am not uh, uh, I'm not an ethicist in the strong sense. There are experts there, but I am drawn to negative utilitarianism, right? So my idea is that in this world, very obviously, it is much more urgent to reduce conscious suffering than to bring more joy, like in an American growth model, uh, into this world. That's, and you can see that most philosophical systems and most culture share this intuition. It is much more urgent to help a suffering human being to suffer less then it is urgent to make a happy human being more happy. We all think the other thing is more urgent. And um, so I think uh, ethics should be suffering-focused ethics on minimizing negative utility, minimizing um, preference frustration that is consciously experienced. But I know that many people uh, disagree and there are technical philosophical debates there. It's, it's not as easy as I put it, um, but still, I think if one begins to think about suffering, one realizes a lot of things most people don't want to realize. I give you some numbers. There are 8 billion suffering human beings on this planet. There are 60 billion animals in factory farming and in industrial meat and milk production that suffer for humans. But if we all died or became enlightened and didn't suffer anymore, and if everybody became a vegan and all these factory farming animals didn't suffer anymore, this might not change the overall amount of suffering on this planet much because there's this ocean of wild animal suffering out there. We don't know the numbers, but there are all these other creatures who constantly eat each other alive. Schopenhauer has said, you know, everyone being the living grave of others. And um, so biological evolution as such, even if you don't think about human beings and factory farming, I think is a highly problematic process. It created a lot of conscious suffering before human beings existed on this planet in a place of the physical universe where there was no such thing before. So I think evolution is also not something to be glorified or a fantastic thing. It sacrificed billions and billions and billions of our biological uh, ancestors in this pro process of genetic optimization. And we are a product of this process. And our brains, the functional architecture of our nervous systems, our minds, are a product of this very long process of biological evolution. 
and a short period of cultural evolution. And um, I think if one begins to think about it, this is a very problematic situation to find yourself in. I mean, I'm, I'm not beginning to talk about climate change and things like that. But, um, and of course, most human beings successfully repress the situation. And also in philosophy, nobody, there are some people who will talk about it, some specialists. But it's not good for your career to go in that direction. Nobody wants to hear these things. But it stares me in the face. Does it stare you in the face? Uh, I think I'm uh, living my uh, illusions and cognitive biases of life affirming. Yeah, and uh, but Hegel said there is this law of the boundary that as soon as you've named the boundary, you've already transgressed it. Does it still work? If you can explain it to me like this, do the explosions still work? Well, it works for me. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I trust you. <laughs> <laughs> but congratulations if it works. You, know. you can, of course, see the evolution of religion in this context and all these things. To give, com give comfort in the suffering. Or... Yes, I mean, we have... One thing probably no other animal on this planet has is this explicit insight into mortality, into the, does one say finitude or finitude in English? So we are survival machines. We try to sustain our existence come what may, but we have this high-level cognitive knowledge that the biggest possible accident will happen at the end. We, so there is an all-pervading quality of futility and absurdity in our lives. And people need strategies for absurdity management, um, as I call it. That's the word I've coined. So how do you manage the absurdity you see in the world, but maybe also in your own life? Um, and of course, there's an industry that helps human beings uh, with absurdity management, the Catholic Church. And it's also interesting to see that these industries uh, often, just think of the Catholic Church, they live longer than any tribe, any nation. They are just more, much more successful than any political system. They're always there because the human need for mortality denial uh, that is the product they're selling, and as long as they have that product, they have a lot of, lot of powers. And you know what the political consequences of all this are. You know the, what religions have done to humankind in its history. Is Buddhism better than? Uh, how would you interpret uh, Buddhism or meditation as this kind of existential strategy? Because I think that. Well, either you live and you suffer and you get into the illusions, life goes on, or there's no life there. Well, first of all, I think most of us lack respect to Buddhism if we talk about it. There is a 2,500-year complex theoretical history there that almost nobody in the West knows. It's just beginning. Many of the texts aren't translated. What many people think Buddhism is, is something that is called Buddhist modernism by science, something that has been imported by the West into the West. There was a cultural phenomenon 
the British oppressed Burma, the monks gave certain meditation techniques to the general population, then the West discovered LSD, millions of hippies took their LSD, started to travel to India and to the East, learned to meditate and brought it back to Europe and to California. And that is where this entirely Western idea of what Buddhism is started as a secular spiritual practice that fits very nicely with neuroscience and um, uh, um, uh, Western scientific results. And that's, of course, a construct. Uh, it is an entirely Western construct. Real Buddhism in the real countries is something completely different. Often it's a very primitive form of superstition, which is not spiritual in any interesting sense. It's like folk superstition and Catholicism with a, a clerus organizations and temples. So it, the question would be, um, what does Buddhism mean? The other question is, is, does it work? So the idea is that you can minimize psychological suffering maybe not suffering of the body, old age, disease and dying, greatly by certain mental practices. And I think it's absolutely, of course, important to look into that, if that really works, or if this is just another strategy of mortality denial. Um, I often say, point out, you know, monotheistic religions like Christianity are very primitive. It's, the mortality denial is very direct. There, there will be a resurrection of the dead. You know, we all believe this, period. This is maximally bold and blunt and primitive. In Hinduism and in Buddhism, it's a little bit more sophisticated. So either you liberate yourself from the wheel of death and you have giga bingo, you get enlightened through meditation. Or if it doesn't work, you have to get reborn again. Poor you, you get another life. So that's a slightly more tricky strategy of mortality denial, to offer a false analysis, a false alternative, either reincarnation or liberation. But it's clear that, of course, Buddhism as an organized religion also had the same function of helping people with mortality denial and absurdity management. The interesting question is if we can take the practical knowledge they have developed over centuries, the many different meditation techniques where only a few are known in the West, if we can take them and make something even better out of it, if it works. And personally, I think this could be done, but it's also possible that most of the people just simply don't have the motivation to do something like that regularly for a longer time. And that it is not something that can be scaled. I have always thought every child in school should get a toolbox of meditation techniques, just like learning different sports or how to brush their teeth, they can use later in their life. I would even think every child has a right to be offered something like this. This doesn't mean they all have to meditate then, but they should know these things. But it's possible that this still wouldn't scale, you know. Um, uh, there's some other strategies as well, uh, existentialism. Yeah, is that a strategy? I think so, because, I mean, the, the, our mortality is what gives life 
meaning. Yes. Then you have also this uh, transhumanism that maybe these are maybe even duty to transcend these conditions of uh, suffering. Yes. So what do you think of those? Well, I try to stay away from it because it's so obviously lacks the serious uh, interest in knowledge uh, that philosophers have, that we know from academic philosophy. But still, there is, of course, there are questions which are very hard to discuss in public. Is uh, Could there be forms of conscious intelligence without suffering? Could they exist on machines, on postbiotic systems? Does the human mind have a potential like this? The problem is if you start to discuss these questions more seriously, you get a large crowd jumping on you. And everybody's just interested in drawing strong metaphysical conclusions and in mortality denial. But of course there could be a more serious philosophical discussion of transhumanism. But I'm afraid to touch it because most of the people I've met who do things like that are very obviously crazy. Uh, and it's a way of self, it's a new strategy for self-deception and getting excitement. It's this part of the entertainment industry, actually. It's rich Californians uh, who fall for these ideas. It's a very few privileged people in the world who like to talk about all these things. But then Nietzsche was a transhumanist. And we certainly have had in the history of ideas, we've had many philosophers who thought about in what way man can transcend itself. The question is, is given modern neuroscience and cognitive science, maybe we can say some new things about these old topics. That would be really interesting. Is there one insight or sim similar that you gained either as a philosopher or a meditator that you would feel would be very valuable to share to the general public? Hmm. Um, yeah, well... Life is suffering. No, 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 no. There are, it's very important to understand that there are forms of self-knowledge and forms of understanding which are not conceptual and are not intellectual and about which you probably cannot even talk. And they are equally valuable. And um, for instance, meditation practice is in a philosophical sense exactly that old project, the philosophical idea of self-knowledge, but on a non-conceptual level on a non-propositional level, with a silent mind. Um, and, you know, we have this classical idea of living an examined life. Philosophy as living an examined life. What the East has to tell us is, if you think of Vipassana meditation, you can also live an examined inner life. And that is what we are lacking. Uh, to have more systematic strategy, to live a systematic inner examined life on a non-conceptual level. I really think there's something there and the practical advice uh, would be uh, to people if you are interested in this. I'm not preaching anything, I have nothing to pronounce, um, but if you're interested in this, just do this. You need the commitment for 24 months. 
Don't read books. Don't listen to what crazy people tell you, meditation teachers or philosophers. Just meditate twice a day for at least 20 minutes, twice a day for 24 months. And every day means also on the morning of New Year's Eve and also on Christmas Day. Do this regularly. And if you've done it for two years, two times a day, then you make a decision. You don't have to read books or think about it a lot. You just do it. Just do it regularly. And then you think, is this something good in my life or is it not? And you make a decision. You stop it or you go on. Um, but there's no need you know, to talk about it. Uh, it's just like jogging. You can go jogging twice a day, but you don't need to talk about it. And if you were to go jogging twice a day for 20 minutes, for two years, something would be different in your life. Uh, I would expect that. And maybe it's the same with meditation practice. And is it any meditation practice, like guided or more sitting by yourself, with um, your eyes closed? That's a, I would be conservative. I would just do the most classical vipassana, uh, just do vipassana. Um, maybe a little bit of shamatha, a little bit um, just uh, to calm your mind, um, um, uh, mindfulness of the breath. In the beginning they will teach you this, but you just do this. No experiments, no special thing. The classical best technique is just vipassana, super easy to learn, and then you go for two years. And then you can say this is nonsense. Uh, this leads nowhere. But then you've tested it. And you haven't talked about it. And you haven't just read books. But then you know if there's something there. And maybe there is something there about which you cannot talk. <laughs> That's the possibility. And um, is your, your academic endeavors supported being to bring this epistemology from the inner, from the meditation, from the East? I don't know if that works. I don't know. That's an open question to me. Yeah. I, I really don't... Uh, there may be things... You know, Wittgenstein said things like uh, this. Isn't it true that those people who understood the meaning of life weren't able to say what it consists in afterwards? Um, I don't know if that would contribute every anything to academic philosophy directly. That you like can bring results and draw conclusions from that. I think I don't think it's like that. I also think, for instance, it's possible. I've known many many meditators to have pretty advanced meditation practice and altered states of mind and crazy belief systems and be totally irrational at the same time from a philosophical perspective. So the interesting thing is we need both. We need a cultivation of critical rationality to increase our mental autonomy and a secular practice uh, together. But um, I don't think that you can read off any philosophical conclusions directly. Well, I mean, that's something that stands on its own. It doesn't have to be interpreted in the epistemologies of the West, that um, empirical facts independent. Yes, Whoever makes any claims in the public needs independent epistemic justification. Whoever says that he's had any kind of insight or knowledge, just saying that you had direct or intuitive insight into anything, the structure of consciousness or reality, 
Um, that's not a tenable philosophical argument. That won't work. Um, but if you don't talk, you don't have to epistemically justify anything. And I think I should stop talking. Thomas <laughs> Metzinger, <laughs> thank you for being a guest on our podcast. It's been a delight. Thank you very much for the invitation. <laughs>